0: Welcome to Everything Trying to Kill You, episode 6. Yay, episode 6. I am Megan.
1: I am Mary Kay. And our lovely guest. And I'm... Mary!
2: Hi! It's not confusing for anyone. Megan,
0: Mary, and Mary Kay. Get it straight. Don't confuse it.
1: Tell us about yourself, our lovely guest.
2: Well, um, when I'm not making sims that look like my pets or starting fires uh, in my home, in the fireplace, usually. Um, I'm probably just drinking. I don't know. I don't do that much exciting stuff. I am writing a television pilot about said AmeriCorps term. Thanks for asking. It's the worst. Oh, my God. It's really hard. Why does anyone do that? And yeah.
1: So speaking of death, today we're going to talk about Megan's favorite
0: Oh my gosh, I got so excited about having like this movie and having a cool guest that I was like, welcome to Everything Trying to Kill You. It's this episode. I'm not going to tell you what we're talking about because I was too excited. It's The Shining, guys. One of my favorite books and films ever. It's a lovely combination of both my favorite author like, and my favorite filmmaker in the whole world. And I was so pumped when Mary Kay was like, I'm going to watch this film. And then she hated it. And it was the most disappointing thing in my life. I did.
1: (laughs) But I said some funny shit, right? At least.
0: You did. My favorite line, which is, I would fuck the literal dog shit out of Jack Nicholson. Speaking of you saying funny shit, that's my favorite thing that you have ever said in your entire life.
2: (laughs) And you know what's interesting about that to me is that I would believe it if someone told me that jack nicholson also always has dog shit in his pocket like it's just such a weird thing to do that like probably i don't know
1: <laughs> he seems like he has like no i think i read this there's no way i invented this hunter s thompson like stored his elk heart in jack nicholson's and and angelica houston's freezer i think so dog shit in his pockets he might <laughs>
2: Angelica Houston is in the is like, right at the edge of all of the most amazing and bizarre Hollywood stories. She's she's rarely the linchpin, right? She's not the axis of insanity, but she's always there. It's fantastic. Seriously, just like dig around sometime for weird stories.
1: Yeah, I like her a lot. She has crazy good cheekbones. Um, it's impressive to me. So okay, so. Since I knew Megan, that this is your favorite book, one of your favorite movies, and I hated the movie, well, I hated almost. Everything. not every single thing. I can understand like why it's a big deal. That was scary. But there were, there were so many differences when I listened to the audiobook versus when I watched the movie I watched that again. And so pretty much everything but the setting of the hotel is different right? Correct. So, uh, why would you make it an adaptation if that was the case?
0: Because Stanley Kubrick does whatever the fuck he wants. I don't have a better, more logical answer to that.
1: (laughs) I mean, okay. All right. But also, like, Mary, you have a logical answer?
2: So, The thing is that, you know, I was actually, I I dug up an interview, which Kubrick didn't do often, he's really reclusive, but um, he did an interview and talked at some length about The Shining, and what's amazing is that I looked at my notes from watching the movie and notes I'd done after, I was reading this interview, and I was like, man, directors always show our asses, we just show our asses. If you get us to talk about our work, and then look at the work, you're like, nah, No. No. And he talked about it as if he's telling this like human story. And then you watch the movie and you're like, do you care about these people? Are these real people? This feels like they'll tell you one story. They can tell you what drew them to it. They can tell you what they were so excited to make happen. And then you look at what actually happened. And he talks about it as if this this very human story, like he just talks about it the way Stephen King talks about the book he actually wrote. And then you watch the movie and Stephen King described it as a as a, like an ant hill, like watching ants in an ant, anthill. ant hill like, oh, fascinating, look at these little creatures with their with their choices um ha ha ha. they think their lives matter and i it was just really interesting to me that i i, I felt like, I felt like that was accurate It's this very like zoomed out atmospheric experience, and uh, that's not how he talked about it at all, and it just cracked me up because. I I get it, man. I get it. I get it. I do it all the time.
1: Yeah, I definitely got the ants on an anthill vibe, except for one scene. Um, And you guys are going to think that I'm a terrible person for this. But when um, Jack is writing and Wendy's like, how's it going? Like, can I help you? And he's like, get the fuck out. I'm working every time you come in here. I have to start over. So why don't you start doing that now and get the fuck out? My face, which is how I feel. When I'm writing. I don't do that, but that's that's the that's a human reaction to me.
2: Exactly. And here's what's great about that scene: that is Jack Nicholson. On set, he was describing having these interactions with with his uh, wife, like having this kind of this kind of moment. And they wrote it while they were already filming. That's not part of Kubrick's original screenplay. So the, the moment that stands out to you as the most like human and intimate is a moment that did not actually come from his, his mind, his vision for the, for the movie. Uh,
1: but the, the things I didn't like that I thought were better in the book were that, um, Halloran's character.
2: Well, and it's, it's a double trope, right? You have a magical Negro who's also the black guy who dies first.
1: Yep. Doubled on that. And I that because he was like in the book this is what I liked uh, what what I liked about the book so much is like he's the hero he's the one who like he makes it back he gets smashed in the face which brings me to my next point of the weapon is different for Jack Um, smashed in the face twice still rescues Danny and Wendy they don't rescue themselves Danny doesn't like connive against him in the labyrinth in the movie when he's like backstepping I'm like I don't know man he's five I don't know if I would have thought about that when I was five
2: this, we're going to keep circling back to this, but all, there are so many things that he and uh, Wendy do that are typical of family surviving abuse. Like kids, kids who develop these like extra perceptive means of staying out of their clutches, the clutches of this person, you know, because they have, that's how they've been getting around. So yeah, so you have a lot, I've met, caught i met so many kids over the years who you wouldn't believe like the bat ears could hear you flick through walls whole conversations and track that like do you, you do what you need to do to survive so it kind of makes sense that he would be i know in the book he's incredibly intelligent in the movie he's not not especially like he's he's a pretty normal kid who just has some of those gut
0: uh moves yeah in addition to his
1: damn i didn't even think of that that makes total sense the kid the kid they cast what do you guys think of him
0: i thought he was okay he was not my major concern with casting choices
1: Okay, it's <laughs> fair enough. Uh,
2: Casting-wise, I think that's as close as Kubrick got to anything being reasonably within the spirit of the book there.
1: Yeah, I liked him, and this is another thing that I didn't like about the movie, but I guess I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but um, there's no, like, convention established about this world of The Shine, so I couldn't tell, like, I mean, in the book I found out who Tony was, but in the movie I was like... What do you mean he's a little boy who lives in your mouth? What does that mean? What does that mean?
2: <laughs> well, right. Especially because cause he's a little kid who like doesn't have... like. Of course, a seven-year-old would say like someone lives in their mouths. They're seven. I am not, though. So that's the part where I have a conversation with the child about, like, let's really dig into that one. In fact, in the movie, I don't know if... You, like, you could probably watch the whole movie and come away from it not totally convinced that Halloran and Danny actually do both have the shine. Like... Halloran could be talking about something that he is experiencing, and Danny is just a very troubled young man who is coping by dissociating <laughs> and that is not the same thing at all. We can see that he like clearly does have some sort of some something extra going on, but Halloran never really does.
1: Yeah, that's true. Um, it could be the whole disparity of like the minds talking that happens in the key and peel sketch like, listen to Morgan Freeman. Just listen to Morgan Freeman. <laughs> By the way, listeners, if you guys haven't seen that sketch, it's how I felt after I watched the movie the first time. I was like what? This is like, what are the rules? There's no rules. How can you break the rules if there aren't any rules? That's the reason they're there. Anyway, so now I narrowed it down, y'all, about disparities between the movie and the book, where I was like, why would you make that choice stylistically? It doesn't make any fucking sense. Okay. Last thing about the Danny thing in the in the book, Danny. I mean, Tony lives in the mirror, which makes more sense because that's how I get the backwards letters. He also because I was the whole time like, okay, are you real? And he is. He's like a he's like a future ghost. The ghost the ghost of Christmas future um, of what he could be if he continues on the path like Jack did.
2: That's his. Spe- that's so. In the book is how. So okay. We talk about the spirit guide, right? As like, as iconography. So in this case, in the book, right? Tony, spirit guide? What does that make Halloran?
1: Um, Halloran is just a nice guy who's in the right place at the right time.
2: So Halloran is not the conduit, not the conduit across the threshold. That's Tony. Tony is the one who takes him across the threshold. Halloran is the one who goes with him, who in most versions of a, like, heroic or mythic cycle would die. Yeah, right.
1: Yeah, but he doesn't. Because it's actually his story, kind of. So yeah.
0: So, like, the point of view is this all-knowing third-person narrator, basically, and it skips from person to person, kind of allowing the reader and the watcher to get, like, a first-hand information from everybody, which at first I really kind of hated, and it really kind of confused me, and it really didn't seem necessary, but then the more I kind of read it and watched it, it gives a sense of almost like an endless watchability, to me because every time you watch it or you reread it you kind of can watch it from multiple point of views like you can watch it from Danny's innocent eyes you can watch it from Wendy's like willing disbelief like it's not a matter of in that scene of like can she beat her husband with a baseball bat it's like will she do this or you can watch it from like through Jack's point of view of like weakness and rage and loneliness and Despair, and so it's kind of neat that you can get the same exact story, and it's three completely different stories depending on like who you ping to.
1: Yeah, can be done really well, right? But in the movie, I, I was the whole time like, who am I supposed to? Because I had the most connection with Jack, which is upsetting. I don't
2: think so. I don't think so in the case of the movie. Um In the well, first of all, in the book, I was struck that that King and Kubrick went such had such a different takeaways like created to such different riffs on the same theme. Um, so to start with King's version and come away with Kubrick's version uh, for Kubrick to see himself in Jack and then recreate him in that way. The character in the novel is that, that compelling, that strong, Like there's a lot of, there's a lot to dig into there. Um, but in the movie, uh, if you identify with Wendy, uh, like call me later and we should have a much longer talk. And if you identify with Danny, then please explain to me what this whole motherfucking is in my mouth thing is like. They're not. They're, there's not a lot of their inner life to work with. Part of
1: it is purposeful, right? Like you're a little bit dissociated and a little bit re- be able to relate to Jack, to Wendy, if you were in that situation, and then to Danny at all, really. But because he and Halloran can like share a consciousness, like which, which is what is hap, which is what happens when he like goes into that. Shock when he's in Miami, right? Hellran when Danny is like screaming for him. It should be their story because there should be the most dominant perspective because they have more perspectives to look at. Like Danny's so smart because he can read his parents' thoughts. That's nuts. Let's talk about having an abusive father and the child can also read their thoughts and know what's going to happen. Which is
2: another like literary interpretation of the actual experience of living with an abusive parent, right? Which is like, the, like I was just saying, the thought reading that that kind of trying to like being able to interpret the most minute body language, being able to interpret the most minute shifts in tone of voice, or or the the feel of a room, right? The vibe. Um, that's that is a is like a common way of surviving. Beyond which, there's the complicated nature of loving someone and knowing all of their good qualities and all of their strengths and all of the wonderful things about them and having to live with all of that good as the person is hitting you and i think that him being able to read jack's thoughts is that kind of like weight that a child can't handle and shouldn't have to um but it you know gets like a whoa this was supposed to be
0: funny
1: no it's true i mean that's why they're scary though right is it's because it's deeply upsetting <laughs> correct
0: But King, when he was writing the book, one of the things that he had mentioned is that he almost considered Jack to be an autobiographical character. And it was based loosely on his addiction to alcohol, but also on what he perceived to be the turmoils of parenting. And at one point he went on to quote that, you know, every parent gets irrationally angry with their child at some point in their life and wants to hurt them. And alcohol makes it even harder to control. It's basically like obviously your intent is to never harm your child but at some point in your life like your kid is going to make your blood boil and then when you're struggling with an addiction like alcohol you know to try to then gain control of your emotions and your decisions and think about those consequences is where a lot of the inspiration from this book came from when king was writing it which i thought was kind of interesting to think of.
2: Well, and considering that King's version of this story is is so choice-driven, right? All the characters are more fleshed out, and we understand so much more of their of what they want, and, and then they take steps to get it. And then Kubrick's version is really fatalistic. Like, it ends with, like, ha-ha, this is just the reincarnation. He keeps doing this. Um, so it was curious to me that he minimized the alcohol so much, when, to me, that's like, there's your tool, like... This is the lubricant for the toxic masculinity that just makes the cycle go over and over and over and over instead of ever being able to choose for it to stop. And I don't know, this is a weird choice. But I don't know, maybe Kubrick just doesn't think about alcohol or didn't think about alcohol, so he just didn't care. But yeah, um, Mary Kay, we talked about this, that you were like, the picture at the end, like already barely clinging to any sense of, of order or convention here. And then that happens. What
1: the fuck? I, ugh. And that's supposed to be my key information that helps me unravel the mystery of what the fuck I just watched. Are you serious? It's just gonna be a photoshopped, black and white picture of a party. The date doesn't coincide. It's not any particular special anniversary. It's the wrong time of year. The ball was at July 4th, and we're in the dead of winter. Well, number one, I call bullshit. Because... It is bullshit, number one. It just is. And then and then the second part is like, what you're just going to like happen to, the soul is going to fly into a guy who happened to be around right after that. I don't know. It's too, it's that to me, it's too banking on the Amityville horror thing where like the guy was a family annihilator and the people who went after them were like infected by those spirits, I guess.
0: Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say is there's like three main things that influenced book-wise that influenced King's book and House on Haunted Hill. You know, Jackson's House on Haunted Hill was one of them and Morasco's burnt offerings was one of them and Poe's Mask of Red Death. And when you look at it in that contest, you completely get it.
2: Allowing for the fact that special effects at the time the movie was made could not achieve all of the things that King want, like, wrote it should, right? Like, the animal topiaries, not going to move, man. Just, no. muddy doesn't exist for it. So, uh I my lukewarm take is that Kubrick was like, well, then just, like, fuck all the imagery. What do I think is uh, scary to most people?
1: I mean, I think it was super terrifying at the time it came out because it was special effects were on point. I mean, like, at least that was for sure really good. Even, like, it stands the test, I think. It looks good even now to me. Like where like patches of skin were falling off. <laughs> Gross. Uh,
2: yuck. Oh yeah. I, it was, it was nasty. It was terrifying. And if I spent maybe a ton more time and did a lot more leg work, I could be like, this is why. But I, I did a fair amount of time leg work to get to the point of some of the imagery he chucked was like, why? Some of it he kept was like, why? Um, like, yo, the bear thing. If you're gonna get rid, if you're gonna get rid of the Dogman storyline, did did that have to happen? Did that have to happen to me? What? What? That wasn't even scary. Now, so here's another thing that did, that was really interesting to Kubrick was that this really is paranormal, right? That you kind of buy into the story, you get invested in these characters, and King's done such a good job that you start out thinking like, oh, the story is that he gets trapped, it's all up in his head, like he he's going to make himself. Uh, sick and 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 ruin his own life so that by the time the groundskeeper actually opens the door for him you're like yeah totally a ghost because you're invested now like at this point it doesn't matter whether it's real or or fake everyone's life is on the line at that exact moment and he he liked that that it actually is magic and ghosts it's not in his head this is all just psychology that they're just unapolog- unapologetically paranormal. And uh, so I, I get like, okay, like Wendy sees it. Maybe you're establishing that that's, that's part of your establishing that it's not just, you know, Danny and Tony, little buddies. It's not that Jack is losing his mind. It's the hotel. But Wendy was, seemed so unstable at that point that it was like, I don't this is not reassuring.
1: And I'm, I'm fine with it being paranormal, but it can't just be a nightmare sequence and then we get a hard artifact that is the picture. Take thing and then trust your viewer. That's how I feel about it. I don't like it at all because of that. It's like, it's just, it's too it's too much like, uh, I mean, I guess this is partly because this came out in what, the 80s? 77. So a lot of it was like, let me put in, uh, the way I felt about it at least. I know that um, Kubrick is, is a genius and everything, but a lot of it, to me, was just like, what else can I put in here to scare everyone?
0: Well, a lot of what he did, and is something that I kind of have a whole lot to say on we get to, like, why is this horror, and why is this, in my opinion, the literal greatest psychological thriller ever of all time, is that, well, nothing that he does is unintentional. Everything he does is super intentional, and part of the whole thing with, like, the little the little bear costume dog man, like, giving a blowjob to the man and, like, Wendy sees it is because she's terrified. She's scared of, you know, her husband and there's this going on. But like, like Mary said, like, it is a hotel. There's other people here.
1: When I was in between after grad school and before I could get, like, a real teaching job, I worked in hospitality. My first day, um, a guy who had worked at the, at the hotel where I was working. It's a big convention hotel in downtown Atlanta. That's where they have Dragon Con, in case any of you who are listening know this hotel. It's the one with the trippy carpet. It's real, it's real Kubrickian, that carpet. Anyway, so the first day, there was a guy who had worked there before for six years, and he left because he got another offer. And because, and this, he told me this on, our, on my first day, that one time someone went to the 42nd floor and she jumped into the atrium and he saw it and everyone who was working because it was a busy season also saw it and um, she didn't hit anyone but they did have decorations strung across the atrium so so that was like what began my experience working there and then like everybody I talked to I was like so what's your weirdest story and everyone had something because it's such a big hotel it's such a transient place like even if people don't mean to do crazy shit there they just have there's a lot of people coming in and out yeah well I think hotels are Hotels are
2: like liminal, carnival space, right? It's the break from your actual life. So if you're going to have the most bizarre experience of your year, that's where it's going to happen.
0: I think that's a good point. And I think that that's definitely part of what Kubrick was playing into was this idea of, like someone said, like the weirdest parts of your life or the weirdest parts of anyone's life are going to happen in a hotel. And if you could truly see all the crazy shit that goes on behind a hotel door... It's probably horrific. And, like, Wendy stumbled upon part of that, and it was probably one of the least weird things that could possibly ever happen in a hotel.
1: And so uh, that part of it is scary, right, that hotel aspect of it. And the other aspect of the hotel is that hospitality is a very artificial space-wise, like, interaction-wise industry because we're we're here to make you feel special. And also you feel special, and also the next person – fake face thing. Like that's how Danny like gets behind the masks, right? Is to be like, you're not real. Just like Mr. Halloran said, you're like a dream. And when I close my eyes, it's going to be gone. You're going to be gone. What is it? It's all fake, false faces. Those two things combining, which I'm not even sure that's what he had in mind, but I don't care because that's the part that made it scary for me. Another thing that's pretty accurate about the hotel experience too, is like, if you don't know your way around, you will be lost right away. Like in the big ones. And that's scary because like, no one knows even where to look for you.
0: So I think, well, well, part of like when I was saying like the intention, and it kind of I've been like, it'll segue into what I think like the second scariest thing was, is that the movie is also pretty ripe with subliminal messages, which The Exorcist was one of the first films that really gave us subliminal messages in a movie. And then Kubrick really wrote on those coattails And they are all over. And it's one of those things that unless you're looking for them, you don't catch. But they really kind of fuck with your head. The thing that makes it, I think, also scary and a great psychological thriller for me is that the movie is ambiguous as hell. There is almost, I mean, there is a plot, but, like, there's no plot. There's no answers. There's no real, like, plot climax. And I think for our minds to function, we need to have structure and information and an outline and... Yeah, like most of Kubrick's work is super thick with detail and it's rich, but like it's completely ambiguous. So if we're not able to mentally digest it, it's now unknown to us and we can't make sense of it. Therefore, it's horrifying. Yeah, he's he's not a
2: he's not a plot guy. Real you know? like it's he's it's about it's about atmosphere and experience. Like when we were when Mary Kay and I first sat down to watch it, um, we were talking about that. I was like, it's he's trying to give you the experience of the claustrophobia and the time moving erratically so that you don't you lose track of where you are and when you are and how long it's been and has it been long enough for this to be a reasonable reaction to what's happening to me and I'm irritable now and then oh my god I just got jarred by that and why why what is that like that that really disoriented experience like you're gonna get there and you're either gonna respond like jack wendy or or Danny, because they're the ones who are leading you by the hand through it, because that's who you have to travel with in the story. And um, Well, and it's disorienting in a really specific and recognizable way, right? That everything looks so uniform and so clean and polished, like there's no landmarks. There's And the landmarks that exist are very, very carefully curated for you to direct you to only what you're supposed to get to or see.
0: Yeah, which is my number one thing that makes this scary, but also the greatest thriller ever and like you you mentioned uh, you're disoriented there is a huge lack of time but the movie is nothing but spatial anomaly after spatial anomaly and if you try to physically lay out that damn hotel none of it makes any sense there is like the impossible door motif like when you're in the kitchen they go through a door but if knowing where you came in from the other door like that's gonna lead into another room and that door doesn't really go anywhere in the uh, Ullman's office he, you know, there's a window that should not be there, basically, you know, and then you s-
2: Yeah, yeah. This is the source of a, a bunch of conspiracy theories about this.
0: Yeah. And Kubrick really played into it in the movie, and if you rewatch it and pay attention to it, almost all of the scenes have a really unsettling amount of symmetry in them, especially like if you look at all, like office, the shelves are symmetrical, the patterns on the floor are symmetrical. If there's a door on this side of the screen, there's a door on this side of the screen, And it just doesn't feel authentic or natural or organic at times. And that's kind of unsettling. So it's definitely a horror movie by the obvious things. You know, there's acts and there's blood and there's supernatural things. But it's a horror movie that relies entirely on atmosphere and tension just as much as it does the shock and the gore. And the camera just weaves around this hotel and you're completely disoriented. And it feels escapable and overwhelming. And then... You add into that that you're being chased by your husband with an axe, your kids seeing talking to his imaginary friend that lives in his mouth, there's twins riding around on tricycles, there's a man in a bear suit giving a blow drop. Like it's horrifying because you don't know what to make of it, and then there's no plot and you really don't know what to make of it.
2: I feel I feel thoroughly chastened. Um, as many times as I've seen this, until I my most recent feeling with Mary Kay. I had been calling them the twins, and then I actually listened to the dialogue for apparently the first time and Alman's like, five and seven. And I was like, oh no, I'm a monster. What have I done? I've been so wrong. And I've been calling them the twins like my whole life too. And I was like, oh no, I've, I've ruined
1: it. I did it wrong. Yeah, speaking of the twins also, the shots leading up to when Danny sees them, he's pedaling, and then it's like on the carpet, off the carpet on the carpet off the carpet and then he'll go around the corner and we're like a second and a half behind him uh every time he rounded a corner i was like oh shit something's gonna happen that's really good that's a really good cinematography that's my favorite thing about the movie i think
0: yeah so the whole thing is just dizzying i guess is a good way to put it it's like no matter how hard things might become you can always trust your own perceptions Except in this fucking story. Like, whatever you perceive is is wrong. Like, you can't even trust your own instincts or your own perceptions or what you're seeing with your own eyes. And that speaks to why is this horror?
1: Yeah. And I want to have another reason for why it's scary. I know that we usually do this at the end, but I always misquote this. What's Chekhov's gun rule? If you introduce a gun in the first scene, it needs to go off by the act, first act and then third I felt that way when Halloran takes them to the walk-in freezer, which was my, the scariest part of the hotel when I worked in it, because although I am not a small person, I can't open a walk-in freezer door from the inside. Okay, so have you ever like opened the fridge and then closed it and then tried to open it again right, right away? Yeah, so that's fucking terrifying, and then I didn't notice this until this most recent time, but I was like... I don't want to be in this place. It's gross. And then Wendy ends up locking him in there. And then Grady lets him out. The ghost lets him out. and then, But then at the end of the movie, he freezes to death. So I thought that was a nice, like, intro to the the gun rule. It's not a gun. It's a freezer. But anyone, I, I feel like anyone who's worked in a restaurant at all will be like, mm-mm, no, mm-mm, mm-mm. That's how I felt the whole time we were in there. Halloran was like, I'm a nice person. You want some ice cream? I was like, no, I want to go the fuck home. It's what I want. Pass. Hard pass. I mean, you seem like a really nice man, but I will go with you. Yes. Correct. And I hate Florida. So that's saying something.
2: We are so smart. So you have these two men who are drawn to the story with the same, like, core, right? Both King and then Kubrick to King's story. Are, are they're both fascinated by this creative man whose demons could bring down everyone around him and whose demons are inextricably linked to that creativity, not to his capability, not to whether he is actually a genius, not to whether he's actually going to produce anything, but the drive in the first place. And this question of, you know what I mean? Like the, the, the fact that the person wants, wants to be this person wants to do this is what pushes him over the edge. And in, King's version, he's a very human human guy who wants to do right, who wants to keep his family safe and intact. In Kubrick's version he starts out as Jack Nicholson, so we end up with Jack Nicholson too. They both they each mirror they each mirror their they each mirror their creator, right? Like the the detached auteur versus the the the, the very struggling human kind of intimate version of the same guy, but in both circumstances the only reason anyone dies is that he dragged their asses up to a hotel so he could have peace and quiet to do his fucking masterpiece and shit that he then doesn't even do. Because here's the thing. That's the thing. They made, these two men each made a story that's terrifying to the rest of us. But the really terrifying story for them is that the guy fucks everything up and still doesn't do shit like every other story ever written by a white man and also most stories in general this is fundamentally about the toxic masculinity of fragile white dudes and how it destroys everything they touch
0: (laughs) no but for real it's like the whole reason jack turns on his family is not because of like visions or demons or the supernatural, it's literally because he wasn't able to find like a proper job or a role or an identity or balance like this or in within this ordinary family life. And he's kind of driven himself mad from his like, his obsession with his contractual obligation at the hotel as well. Like he keeps saying over and over and over, like, I gave him my word, I gave him my word. And Wendy just doesn't understand it.
2: It's not that he has these deep connections that he then can't navigate it's that jack isn't connected to anybody like he has a he i put a quote in the notes man i was like oh yeah no that's the story i saw everything else you've said contradicts this but that's the story i saw you telling that's upsetting where is it okay i see it uh jack comes to the hotel psychologically prepared to do its murderous bidding he doesn't have to go very much further for his anger and frustration to become completely uncontrollable. He is bitter about his failure as a writer. He is married to a woman for whom he has only contempt. He hates his son. In the hotel, at the mercy of its powerful evil, he is quickly ready to fulfill his dark role. Yeah, you cast Jack Nicholson for that. He showed up ready to go? Uh, yeah, fine, okay. Yeah, he showed up ready to go. That's fine. If you're going to cast a woman who for whom he has only contempt, and you want the audience to be able to identify with Jackie even a tiny bit she has to be someone that you can make contemptible and he did and it's actually really reprehensible and he's one of my favorite directors and it's really hard for me to live with the, what he did to Shelley Duvall like I, that isn't that's not okay at all he was, he was tremendously abusive to her on set so the scene is the scene with the baseball bat right he had her do hundred and twenty seven times which is the record for a number of takes and of all takes do one hundred and twenty seven times I can't imagine the toll. His daughter actually made a documentary about the making of The Shining. And there are scenes where Shelley Duvall is just like collapsed on the floor, exhausted. He berates her, like yells at her, but he's he's just
1: cruel to her. Yeah, but that's like, you shouldn't have to create that situation for the actress to be able to do it, because that's what acting is. Um, While we're talking about the terrifying scenes of Jack Nicholson attacking um, Wendy. I've just started calling him Jack Nicholson instead of Jack Torrance, but you know what? Tomato, tomato. He, did, he has a baseball bat when they're on the stairs, right? That's the one he shot 127 times. But then he has an axe, or like a hatchet later. He axes Halloran, which, killing him after all of that trip, like, what were we even doing in that storyline then? That's what makes his character the magical Negro trope, because he that like that's just... He's a, a tertiary character. Yeah, he had one function and he failed. Why is he yelling, hello, is anyone here? No, just listen. Just tap in, you know? Like, so that doesn't make any sense. Um, and then also, which again is violating the convention that you've barely established. So why don't you just like unzip one of their faces and have a Disney witch come out while you're at it? Like,
2: I I'm not even sure it's ever established that the shine involves being able to hear other people
0: in the
1: movie. It is. You really feel so? Yeah. Because he looks at him and he asks if he want. He says, hey, doc, you want some ice cream?
0: Yeah. Halloran tells Danny that the shining at its core is a fusion of telepathy and clairvoyance. And so being able to shine means being able to communicate with others using your mind and the ability to see things that have happened in the past or that will happen in the future.
2: Yeah, but. But to anyone besides them. To anyone besides the two of them. But what I mean is, is it established that they can communicate with people who don't have the shine? That they could listen to someone who doesn't have the shine?
1: Um, only. Only in the therapist scene with Danny. That's the only time we ever get it. And he barely says anything. I think that we're, I'm I'm conflating the two narratives. Because in the book, it's very obvious that Danny can hear everything. And he doesn't want to. He can't turn it off because he shines so much. Anyway, Halloran getting axed. That wouldn't have happened if you had established and stuck with the convention. Which is a problem for me. And then also, it was super frustrating because it's like, I just don't like it when information is withheld that we should have known. Earlier. Welcome to Stanley Kubrick, I guess. But it's just it's lazy writing. Like to have like a this is going to be contentious. Um, that's why I don't like Shyamalan movies.
2: Do you feel that way about? Do you feel that way about all of them? Like, are there any you've enjoyed, or do you? Because I, I there are definitely movies I've seen like some of his. I'm like, dude, you, nah, you were you were just hinging on us like not having seen that one thing and you do you decide where to point the camera so that's not fair um and then there are some where it's like oh okay
1: that's fun um i didn't he do the others i liked the others oh yeah but that's why i don't like those movies is because you give they give a ton of exposition but they withhold like one piece that is crucial to unlocking the rest and the second time you watch it it's like this is really boring so with the exception of the others, which is how I felt kind of about The Shining, except for our one piece of information was a red herring that photograph at the end, because what the fuck am I supposed to do with this picture?
2: And I think if the well, I think if that's, if that were, that were important to him, right? If, if Kubrick's like got a whole thing here, like if this really is about inevitability, if this is a very fatalistic view of, um, of how crippling these, these creative insecurities are, then, well, yeah, so just like take us there yeah take us there though like that's not like you withheld a piece of information or gave us a red herring it's that when you finally gave us a piece of information that was important to you we had no context you spent two hours destabilizing us you spent two hours disorienting us and now we are thoroughly disoriented and you finally told us the thing you really want us to know and we're n- we're not able to be here for it
1: that's one of the drawbacks of having an unreliable narrator right Is like you, you know you can't trust them to tell the truth but you should be able to trust them to be them
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. You've made this entire world untrustworthy for us.
1: Does that make sense? Like if you, if you know you're dealing with a liar, then you know that everything they say, you should take with a grain of salt. But in this case, because it has like no established point of view and we can't hear what Danny hears like we do in the book, we don't know the truthiness.
2: Well, and what's fantastic about having a child, having a child as your unreliable narr- narrator too, is that they will lie and they will tell the truth. They can't even always tell which one is which. They will tell the truth, but not understand what they're saying. They will lie and not understand what they're saying. So what they're saying isn't the truth and they know or don't know. It's fantastic. It's such an exciting thing. And I feel like if what you want to do is just, is just throw us to the wolves and make it impossible for us to parse what's reality, what's not, what's supernatural and what's in someone's head. Just just take us there through Danny.
1: Yeah. But I think he only knows what he only doesn't know because he's seven. Like when you read the book, you can, it even though he doesn't which is which is part like why the book is so in my opinion so much better and so really well done it's just I feel like some of the characters aren't all the way fleshed out and he needs to get rid of those metaphors those are my real like big criticisms if we were workshopping it that's what I would say I'd be like first of all great story liked it a lot thank you for sharing it secondly though and then I would say again what I just said oh but the reason I brought up the axe thing is because they changed like there wasn't an axe in the book right Megan no, there was not. It
0: was it was a croquet mallet.
1: Yeah, so you basically change, like, instant hand-to-hand death to I'm going to bludgeon you to death, which is what I picked in the, in the crime museum quiz. It's definitely scarier, I think. Like, oh, you're going to chop me in the head? Cool, one blow. Let's knock it out.
0: Well, yeah, I was going to say, it's a common item. You have that lying around your house, kind of. And childlike and innocent and... And it's friendly and familial,
2: and it's what he should be doing with his son instead of chasing him with it. But you're like,
1: you can survive a bludgeoning, which Halloran does in the book, but not in the movie. So, I don't know. The weapon changed the character because like, the mallet is much more...
2: I get like, that leans right back into the one of these is about a man who's struggling to keep his family together. One of these about him is about a man who's destined to destroy them. Ugh. Ugh. Uh, This has got to be the grimmest one you guys have done yet.
1: No, we did Monster last time. This one's at least fiction, mostly. I mean, they're both, like, telling their own stories. It's a thinly veiled autobiography, but, like, Monster was like, no, this bitch lived like this. That's terrible.
2: When Mary Kay was telling me, she was like, we're going to do Monster. Have you ever seen it? I was like, yeah, yeah, uh, of course. Um, uh, When I lived in China, we'd go to the DVD store, which is all just, like, pirated shit. You know, you buy, like, one for a dollar dollar there, which is, you know, cents here and We would just buy a stack of stuff that it was like, oh, we totally should have seen this by now, or, oh, these are classics that we never got around to. And that was one of the ones that was, you know, a highly acclaimed movie that we'd all never seen. We brought it back, we watched it, and we were like, well, we own this now. (laughs) If we ever want to watch it again for fun, I guess we could. (laughs) Oh, God.
1: Yeah, I normally watch all of the movies that we do two times if I haven't seen them before, because it's like, wants to kind of see what happens, right? Because they're horror movies. Sometimes you got a shocker at the end. And then the second time to see like how it happens and why it's going down that way. But like with monster, I was like, nope, can't. I'll watch the opening sequence again. And I was like, I can't, this is, re- it, that was a real sad movie. This one is just infuriating <laughs> so, to me, at least it didn't like unsettle me to my core. <laughs>
2: And I do feel like that infuriation is also part of the experience that if he kept you there long enough, that would also like it would unsettle you in a different it's you're still on your toes like you're still put off somehow like you're not fully there and in control. I have my two like big questions like here's the question like when we talk about this movie and one of them was why the fuck you gonna call this movie The Shining and you ain't gonna fucking talk about The Fucking Shining but maybe one time a little bit but mostly you talked about ice cream.
1: Yeah, it's basically a haunting that's what it seems to be the definition is like your lingering haunting because right? he calls it precognition at one point. And then he says that people can shine but it's uncommon and buildings can shine too and buildings can shine into people who don't have a shine.
0: The book title and the word like the shine was inspired by a John Lennon song called We All Shine On, just as a fun fact for anybody that wants to know.
2: No, uh that's where he got it? I mean, I know the song. Whoa, shine on, like like we all shine on, as in like we shine on after we're dead, or like beyond our bodies? So the shine is like, it's not a soul, but it's like, it's more like a connection to a, a metaphysical layer, right? So some people are connected to this liminal space. Liminal is such a great word when you're talking about just like any piece of anything ever that's even remotely narrative. But yeah, so it's like the liminal space between real world and whatever is beyond it. And some people can access it. Well, and the fact that you can hear people that don't want you to hear them, right? Like it's not a shared experience. Yeah.
1: It's not quite collective unconscious, because not everyone is in on it. It's invasive. Right. And they don't know it. Yeah, but it uh, but okay so here's the thing I want to talk about in the book. Uh, wasps are a motif they work as a hive and individually which I thought was pretty cool like I didn't I didn't I wasn't super into the style of King's writing. It was perfect for audiobook though because it was like not super complex syntax, good narrator, solid, slow reader. That's the thing about reading aloud right You got to read slow and emphatic. Like that's the main thing. Anyway, so they have like the wasp tropes. Like one of them stings Danny, even though Jack has tried to exterminate them and he hasn't. So it's like an extra metaphor for like the shine and how I don't know. It's pretty cool. I like that that wasp thing. And if I was gonna like a conference paper on it, I would do that. And how it's a metaphor for the shine. I just I put it in there because I was like, maybe we'll have some time and I can mention that. I don't know. It was cool. And wasps are fucking terrifying because like Jack says in the beginning, they're not like bees. They can sting you over and over. Their stinger doesn't come out.
2: I was going to say, that's another thing about them, is too, is this association with aggression. You know, with a bee, you kind of feel bad if you kill it. A, if it stings you, it's already dead. And B, if you swat it preemptively, you're like, oh, man, that makes honey. It's so cute. And hornets are so aggressive that it's like, that's not that's not what we're doing here. <laughs> the idea with the wasp is that you'd have to provoke it, but when you do,
0: it will fuck you up.
1: Were you going to add about what The Shining actually is, Megan?
0: But, like, that Danny's like, powerful, shining ability is what makes all of the ghosts and visions, like, within the hotel. And that he is able to visually manifest all the things that have happened in the past and is able to, like, bring them into the present time. And that's where all the shit comes from.
1: Ooh. (gasps) He's the conduit. Oh, shit. Because this is a cyclical thing, right? Like, the building shines into whoever, whomever, whoever, whomever, object, whoever is there and can receive it. I wonder if the Grady sisters were in Danny's position in the 20s. That's why they're coming to him saying, come play with us.
2: Well, that might make sense then that Grady was the starting point that whenever this opened, whatever happened, the reason it happened to Grady was that his daughters or one of his daughters had the shine. So it came to him. And now it keeps bringing back. So his reincarnation... His kid keeps having the shine. He keeps coming back. He keeps coming back. The kid keeps having the shine. And they're both cyclical, basically. Yeah, but then if the building is, like, shining at him and it... Well, then that raises the question, though, that, like, is the shiny... Are they shining at him? Is it benevolent and this is just all they have to share? Is it just, like, you shine, I shine, this is what we do, here you go. And it's just all they have is, like, bloodied children. Yeah, like, it's the ability, but this is all I have to show you. Like if if what Danny sees is what you have and this building is at this point just so profoundly infested with
0: crap and evil and anguish and tension.
2: Yeah, that it's not even, it's it can't help whether it hurts him or not.
1: Yeah, and then it becomes more of a possession type thing too, which is another thing in my trifecta of evil shit I can't handle. Actually the other two things because you have both demons in this case and an evil child.
0: Correct. I love how you're, trifecta of things that you hate are like my things that make a horror movie great i love how it's completely opposite
1: that's what makes them intolerable to me it doesn't make them ineffective it just means like i will never not think about it that's the thing when it's a fantasy it's fine because it's not real but when it when like especially demons and evil kids since i'm learning i'm coming around to them like they're not as terrifying to me as they used to be but like demons and evil kids that shit's real and that's why it's like, nope, that's not fun. That's not entertaining to me.
0: Maybe that's why that is t- entertaining to me, since we share different beliefs. But, like, The Exorcist, hands down, is will always be my favorite classic horror film ever.
1: Listen, that's one... I mean, even with the 70s special effects, I had to watch that movie in a brightened room in 10-minute segments in the middle of the day.
2: I don't like horror movies all that much, really. I, am. Um... I am weak and feeble, and full of full of fear and potential nightmares waiting to be unleashed. <laughs> so I uh, I'm very selective in my horror watching and horror enjoying. And at the time that I watched The Shining for the first time, I was still young enough that it was my big thing was like, are people being maimed horribly? No, cool, okay. Because what's really weird is that I loved Hitchcock and the Twilight Zone as a kid. Those were like my jams. Like, Like, the themes would start playing and my folks would be like, all right, Mary, time for Hitchcock. And I would sit in a darkened room alone and be like, I love this. Then I grew up and was like, oh no, the world actually is terrifying. You know who was on tap to direct The Exorcist and passed it up because he couldn't have full creative control and said that he wanted to make the scariest movie of all time? It's Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, that would have been fascinating.
1: How should we, uh, because we hit all our stuff, didn't we? We did do our icebreaker.
2: <laughs> Let's refreeze the ice. Um, I recently, at one point, might have been trying to keep Mary Kay awake at a point where she might have had enough to drink that she did not want to do this thing. And I did so by asking, what do you think Tony says to Danny when nothing's happening? Like hey, Danny, 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 are you awake? yeah, t- <laughs> I am now, what do you want, man? Danny, if pigs could fly, would they poop from the air? <laughs> and Danny's like, dude, stop it! This is like the seventh time tonight, and it's only one fifteen. you have to go to sleep, I'm sorry, okay, bye, I love you. <laughs>
1: Like slumber party scenario? What does he wake him up to say? (laughs) Okay. I'm still thinking. Megan, go ahead.
0: I feel like he asked for a lot of snacks. Can he eat snacks? Do you think he can eat snacks?
2: Hey, 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 Danny. Do you have Doritos?
0: I was going to say, he lives in his mouth. He's a little kid. I feel like he's constantly asking for some fucking snacks. That's what I would do if I was a ghost child. I would constantly wake someone up and be like, bring me snacks. Takis.
2: Daddy's like, Takis is
0: spicy as shit, man. What are you talking about? But I like Takis. I don't care. <laughs>
1: Keep going. Go forever, please.
0: <laughs> oh, God. I don't know. I feel like he really likes chips. I feel like he would also really like gummy bears. Or would he like gummy worms? Which one would he like better? I think gummy worms. <laughs> so he really likes chips. He really likes gummy worms. And I think right now he's really craving some Pop-Tarts. Yeah. Ooh.
1: Solid. I think that Tony has a crush on Mrs. Torrance. Do you want to know what your mom is thinking right now? What's your mom's favorite Teddy Pendergrass album?
2: How did we get to this entire podcast and I didn't once get to say Scatman Crothers? What the
1: fuck? I really wanted them to have an affair. I just didn't like the sex scenes. And in the movie, there were none.
0: I think they were there truly just to make you feel uncomfortable. I don't think they were supposed to be sexy or serve any other purpose than to truly just skeeve you out. Oh, my God. Also,
2: is the, does Stephen King, does King do a sex scene that isn't? Like, I read The Stand when I was certainly too young to have done so. And I remember just being like, why? Why is anyone looking forward to that?
1: No, I definitely think it's a, like a discomfort thing. Like Megan said, like they, they were negotiating they were, with the only sex scene in the book. So the power thing.
0: But on this awesome note, what's our next podcast episode?
1: I think it's Perfume, A Story of a Murderer. I loved it. I liked the movie. I liked the book. Yeah, it was good. Um, So that's what is happening next at the end of January or beginning of February, I think. Perfume, which is an almost love story. And then my favorite movie ever, The Mummy, the 1990s one. Finally
2: doing the mummy? Outstanding.
1: So on this episode, episode six about the shining, we're gonna have a theme song um which was constructed by I've given him the title of Hot Intern. Uh his but his information is on the on the website. So if you liked it and you want something like it or you just wanna see is he really hot, you can go look.
0: So special thanks to him. Special thanks to our super cool guest, uh super cool guest Mary. We really appreciated you being here. It was fun.
2: I had a wonderful time. Thanks for letting me make everything incredibly dark and
0: unpleasant and heavy.
1: It's our pleasure.
0: Don't worry. It's what we do best, so you fit in great. <laughs> the pleasure was all ours. And it was thoroughly enjoying to watch the fo- the three little cameras at the bottom of my screen just being like three brown girls with dark hair.
1: We're going to be the Grady sisters. Yay, Grady
0: triplets. Grady triplets. <laughs>